so this kind of is going to fall under my little rant of uh, uh, New Year's resolution hipsters and why I don't like them. And you've kind of sort of fallen into that category. So I apologize for everything I'm going to say. Um, but there seems to be an uptake in people who are like vehemently against the concept of New Year's resolutions. Okay. And, and you, they usually have a couple of like similar arguments. One being that um, New Year's is an arbitrary time just make a change whenever which is one point uh, another is like resolutions are stupid they're just they just set you up for failure um and they're that's actually the probably the the main two trusts and then what i'm seeing an awful lot of people especially people on podcasts on, on the internet people they then go and create like non non-resolution non-new year resolutions resolutions right so like they have like uh goals for the year like uh, or they have like year themes and it's like that's just semantics they're still new year's resolutions so there seems to be a huge group of people who like hear the words new year's resolutions get like very angry at them and think it's all silly but then construct these like pseudo new year's resolutions and think they're somehow better and it's driving me nuts because that's all i'm hearing at the moment uh, so I just wanted to complain about that. and the, But the other thing is that I think New Year's resolutions, man, I'm a big fan of them. I think they're actually great ideas um, as long as you treat them with kind of respect. I think the notion of making change around New Year's is a great idea because like it's a natural refreshing point in the year. Like you've had the downtime of Christmas for most people. Like I get that some people work over Christmas, but most people are off at Christmas. It's a lot of like sitting around, watching telly, digesting food there's a there's time to reflect there and then you can launch anew in january and i think post that reflection it's a good time to make changes um and then the other thing is yeah resolutions uh, i think are a really good idea as long as you don't beat yourself up if uh, they don't happen like you should make a resolution and endeavor to do it as best as you can if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen and that's cool the trying is often um, as valuable as uh, actually achieving the thing. So I just want to be one person on the internet who's pro New Year's resolutions and who thinks they're a great idea. And uh, I, I'm anti these New Year resolution hipsters. Um, I don't like this practice at all. So that's my rant, Bill. Those are all fair points. Uh, my New Year's resolution, if, in, uh, in case you want to hear, is to learn how to swim. You can't swim. I cannot swim. No, I can swim like a rock. Uh, but I can't swim <laughs> confidently. Uh, so, because I would like to, at some stage, perhaps do a triathlon or an Ironman, uh, just f- for the sake of saying that I was, I did this bonkers thing. Uh, and unfortunately, one must swim in these races. So I was like, 2019, I am going to learn how to swim. And it's on the to-do list for tomorrow to go ring up the local pool and see that I do adult swimming classes. So that's the thing I'm going to do. Uh, and yeah, I hope I, I hope I can achieve it. Ooh. Um, but yeah, so that, that that's my little rant. Shall we launch into follow up? Let's do that. Okay, so today, Bill, you're in charge of follow up because Bill has brought all the follow up to the table, which is not usually what happens. Usually, I bring the follow up, or most of it. Uh, so, Bill, tell me what's been going on in Artifexia. What would you like to talk about? <laughs> um, just two quick things. Uh. Well, actually, no, for, uh, three, three very quick things. First of all, I'm just going to have a, uh, a shout-out to Vulcan Trekkie, 
from the Reddit. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually encountered each other elsewhere. Elsewhere, not not on Reddit. Yes, and not uh, directly through Artifexian. Um, and oh. we had a, a brief chat last month. So, uh, hello to Vulcan Trekkie. Some Napoleon fan group on Facebook or something. I'm assuming. Uh, not even slightly, but <laughs> not a bad guess. Um, so hello to Vulcan Trekkie. Uh, now the the first thing of follow up that I want to talk about is a Reddit comment from user e dot price e dot price who asked us to comment on the world building in a couple of different uh, properties. Uh, they said. Next episode, if possible, I'd love to hear your opinions on the world building of the following, if you've seen them. The Good Place, Westworld, Rick and Morty, and The Kingkiller Chronicles. So, so have you, are you familiar with any of these, Edgar? I, I know of all of them bar The Good Place, Okay, uh, but I have not read or watched or consumed any of them. Okie doke. Uh, so this um, this is going to be entirely you talking to the audience, man. I'll see you in 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first thing I'm going to say is I have not seen the Westworld uh, TV show. I saw the film uh, years ago, a long, long time ago, but I haven't uh, seen the more recent TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are you familiar with the concept of Westworld, Edgar? Oh, yeah. They cover this on Halloween. Isn't it something about, like, it's, it's the West, but, like, there's robots and it's also like are we or are we not in a simulation or, or something like that Is- uh broad broadly speaking yeah i mean I, i'm going to base this more on the the film okay um but i assume it's a broadly similar premise so westworld is a science fiction film from the 70s in which these uh these guys go to a theme park and the the theme park is entirely populated by robots Mm-hmm. And you can just go there and do whatever you want. So you can you go to the theme park, and you are also the the one they go to is kind of Wild West themed, and they can shoot anyone they want, and there's no consequences because everyone is robots. Oh, um, and so it's like this kind of like decadent, futuristic, uh, you know, violence, extravagance kind of thing. Uh, but what happens is the inhabitants of the theme park, the robots malfunction and they start operating beyond their original uh, limits and they go berserk and try and kill the guests. Um, But okay, so the basic premise is a theme park where the attractions escape and start attacking the the visitors. Right? Okay, yeah. Does that remind you of anything else? uh, Like Jurassic Park? Right. Who wrote Jurassic Park? Oh, gee... Uh, I gotta make a fool of myself here. Steven Spielberg? I think he may have directed it, but it was originally a book written by Michael Crichton. Oh, right. oh I didn't know that. Okay. Now, did Michael Crichton you know, write, write Westworld? Yes, he did. Right. He made the same film twice, about 15 <laughs> or 20 years apart, and no one seems to like have, have called him out on it. <laughs> um, now, I think the TV show does explore the issues of are they sentient and stuff a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I've heard mostly very good things about the TV show, so I, I intend to, to get around to watching it, but I, I have not yet. Um, so that's uh, Westworld out of the way. Okay. Um, now, uh, The Good Place. Are you familiar place. with the concept here? I, no, I know nothing about The Good Place. Okay. So the, the premise of The Good Place is, uh, in, in the first episode, uh, Kristen Bell is dead, and she's in the afterlife. 
and she learns that she has gotten into the good place in the afterlife. (laughs) So broadly speaking, the afterlife is divided into the good place and the bad place. And if you live a good life, you get into the good place. Okay. Um... And this isn't really giving anything away. This is like the what you learn in the first half of the first episode. Uh, there has been a mistake, and she she's accidentally got, been awarded the place in the afterlife that should have gone to someone else. She isn't meant to be in the good place because she isn't a good person. Mm. Um, and she and so she is there trying to hide the fact that she shouldn't be there and trying to like become a better person so she she doesn't get kicked out. Um, mm. so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of really fun stuff in this. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's really, it's wonderful TV. It's really, really wonderful TV. Uh, and it's a, it's a Bangsian fantasy technically, which is something we've discussed on previous episodes. Oh. It's set in the afterlife. Okay. Or sorry. I was about to say, could you remind me of what Bangsian fantasy is, but you did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to give too much away because it develops amazingly over the, I think the third season has finished very recently. Um, and it, it develops amazingly over the course of the three seasons and it questions the assumptions that it sets up in a really interesting way. So I, I would say anyone who, who's interested in watching it, don't read anything more about it. Okay. Don't, don't like try and find out anything more. I've, I've given you the kind of the elevator pitch, watch the first few episodes and see what you think. Uh-huh. Um, but stay away for, for fear of spoiling. The, it's not exactly like twists, but the developments that happen later. Could, could, I spec- um, could I speculate here for a second? And you don't need to respond at all. You can just move on to the next section if you want. Um, right. The, um, the idea of questioning assumptions, surely yeah. uh, the thing that interests me there is the assumption about what what is the good place and what is the bad place. Um, yeah. Because I'd imagine that maybe this good place maybe isn't all that good. You know, in the same way that people say that hell would be an awful lot more fun than heaven. Like, heaven is full of loads of people, like, loads of vegans who eat really well and exercise. And hell is full of, full of like, rock stars and people who have yeah. a great time. So I'm assuming that would be one of the things that it should question. I think if it if it didn't question that or didn't uh, draw that in, it didn't have a conflict there, that would be uh, a missed opportunity, I think. Uh, yeah, it will be. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Next, next show. Um, I'm not finished. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it sets up the setting and examines it. Um, and it has it's it, it gets a lot of material out of examining like historical philosophy. One of the main characters in it is a moral philosopher, and that is the lens through which a lot of things are examined. And it sets up kind of episodes themed around different philosophical concepts mm-hmm. in a in an absolutely like fantastic way, a really accessible way. Um, and it has one of my absolute top 10 gags in any comedy ever, uh, which happens to be based around philosophy. Um, oh, okay. Can you share this or is this, is this, is spoilers? Uh, I, you know, I, I think I probably can. I think okay. I probably can. Hold on. Let, let me, let me just give, give me a second to, to look it up. Uh, one of the characters is, takes it on himself to teach the other one. Uh, about philosophy to, to how how to be good mm-hmm. and uh, he's giving a lecture and he goes right back to the start and he's, he's giving a lecture about the uh the greek philosophers and you know you know the way there's kind of the thing of like the uh socrates taught plato and plato taught aristotle mm-hmm. and that's kind of the, the lineage yeah and so he's, he's giving this this uh lecture about ethics and, and and how it works and the student is going well you know this is ridiculous why should i listen to these people who died and left aristotle in charge of ethics 
And the teacher just pauses and looks at her, points at the board and says, Plato. <laughs> I like it. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, the that reminds me of a thing. This uh, I want to. I would like to complain about lineages. I think lineages uh, as a sort of um, method of of, uh, of translating knowledge uh, is just a broken thing. Like the idea that like I was taught by someone who 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 was considered like big in the field. And the concept then that I have more of the knowledge is just broken. And there's one pretty famous example, a cultural example in Ireland, where there's, I won't be vague about this, but there's a specific person who is able to trace direct, like educational lineage lineage back to a great cultural figure of uh, Western art. And sometimes this person goes on about a little bit too much and i'm kind of like but it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter if you're like tent in the line like that doesn't necessarily make what you have to say automatically more valid i've absolutely no idea what you're what you're referencing there really? okay okay <laughs> this this might be a beeped thing or i might just cut it because uh surely you must know this the uh Um, and we're back. Yeah, back on air. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, largely I agree. It makes sense in certain cultural contexts, but I think in the modern age, sure, with most topics, it's not really, it's it's kind of silly. Anywho, The Good Place. Anything else to add to The Good Place? Uh, no, I think it's everything for The Good Place. Then we've got uh, Rick and Morty. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, I think is three seasons in, might be four now. Um, uh, so the Rick and Morty, the premise of Rick and Morty is imagine you've seen Back to the Future, right? Yes. So take that the kind of the, da- the dynamic of Back to the Future that it's the Doc and uh Marty, mm. um, except uh, Doc is an amoral alcoholic uh, like a completely amoral alcoholic and Marty is his uh, teenage grandson okay um and instead of being about time travel it's about like space and alternate universes um it's essentially it's it's a comedy uh but a very very black one it can be very very nihilistic um and yeah there's there's some good world building stuff in it but Essentially, the world building is is more just the thing to hang gags on, right. or the 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 kind of the comic themes and the sort of philosophical themes are very much secondary to making a, a coherent, well thought out world. In my opinion, I mean, there's, there's there's good stuff in there, but it doesn't hold up to intense scrutiny because of the nature of what it is. It's not necessarily a criticism. Sure. It's just you know you don't. Don't try and get too much sense out of it or try and follow the logic too closely because it's not going to lead you anywhere, really. What is a criticism of it, at least on my part, is that I just find it completely not funny. We watched a couple of episodes of it in your house um, before and I just I just don't get Rick and Morty at all. It's not funny. 
Um, in in my house in Carlo. Yeah, we it was it was pre or post or rather a Star Wars recording. We just watched it watched telly, um, and I remember okay. being like, oh, I get why why people find this funny, but it's it's really not for me. It just the humor just doesn't hit home with me, and yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I I enjoy it. Um, I think it's worth a watch, and you know, there, there's interesting ideas in it, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't personally consider it to be great world building as such because it has different goals. Uh, so the Kingkiller Chronicles is a series of novels mm. uh, by a guy called Patrick Rothfuss. And um, it appeals to me on a number of levels. It's very cleverly built and it's very, very detailed. Uh, like there's really a lot of, you can like a lot of thought has been put into the, the world building. And it is almost entirely that kind of world building that I like in that it's it's from within the universe. Most of the story, like over 90% of the story, is being dictated by a character to another character. So it's it's this guy, Kvoth, telling his life story. Oh, wait a minute. It's the name of the wind. I do notice. This is amazing. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize it was Kinkler part Chronicles. of the King... I just read book one. I didn't realize it was part of the Kinkiller Chronicle. Oh, okay. You haven't read the second uh, one. I have not read the second one. Uh, so I need to amend my statement I said at the start. Uh, clearly the best world building <laughs> and the best one of those four is the is Name of the Wind and the King Kiro Chronicles. It's great. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you see what I mean about how it's it's uh, it's that kind of in-universe yeah. world building. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Which I, I just recently realized that there's a very good term for that. Diegetic world building. Di- diegetic. Di- diegetic in terms of like, uh, I originally know this from... Uh, kind of film studies and things that diegetic audio is audio that is taking place within the context like the the characters can hear it so sound effects and if they're if they're in a, a nightclub and there is music that is all diegetic audio oh. but the score is non-diegetic oh cool or like a narrator a narrator's voiceover is non-diegetic oh very interesting oh there you go you you indulge uh, in a bit of diegetic world building hmm um, so I, I think I think that's quite a handy term for the kind of thing I'm into, mm-hmm. and I saw it recently as well for uh, discussing things within games. Like if you have a map screen that you just like, you press M and it like flashes up, and it's it's not connected to the actual player character's experience. That would be a non-diegetic map. But if you look at the map and the the character like takes it out of their pocket and opens up a piece of paper with a map on it, that's a diegetic yeah, map. Yeah, for sure. Um, which I think is is a neat little uh, distinction. Um. So yeah, it's it's there's very it's very much diegetic world building for the most part in King Killer Chronicles because it is Kvoth's own telling of the story, and you know he's as he like he admits this at the very beginning he's an unreliable narrator. He mm. is gonna make stuff up. He, well, he's gonna embellish things. He's gonna make himself look class. Uh, he says at the very beginning that he comes from a race of storytellers, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of his thing. Um, yeah, there's. I remember ages ago I read an AMA on Reddit with the, the author, and he had said something to the effect of that there are six or seven different kinds of magic in the world, uh, but he had described four of them. They may not be the exact numbers, but it's something like that. There were several. He had only described some of them, and some uh, commenter went, "Okay, well, there's this one, this one, this one, and this is like six, and." The, the author was, oh, oh my, I can't believe you figured those out. I hadn't realized I'd given enough information for people to figure those out. That's really impressive. So 
who's obviously a lot has gone on behind the scenes that he hasn't explicitly stated, but he is he has worked in enough things that someone was able to figure out other stuff that he hadn't even realized he had oh. he had presented, which is kind of cool. I mean, I think that that sort of shows that there's a, a level of attention to detail in the world building for sure. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, you you don't know like the the image we have of the world, both like the physical geographical world and kind of the cosmic um relationships in the world um are quite limited we only know what a bit of the world looks like Mm -hmm. and we only know certain things about the kind of the the cosmic hierarchy so that's quite fun um maybe that'll be resolved or more will be revealed as the series goes on um but he hasn't given too much away i mean i know i know a lot of authors do that they don't give away everything but it's uh and I think he does it quite well in this. Um, and if anyone reads the, or if anyone has read the second book, and I, I encourage you to read the second book, the Fae in the setting are absolutely terrifying. And genuinely, one of the scariest things I've read in literature is is connected to the Fae in the se- in the second mm, book. Cool. Um, so those those are the the four. Uh, properties. So, out of out of the four of them, uh, what's wh- which do you think have the best has the best world building? Um. So, I'm going to discount Westworld because because I haven't seen it. Yeah, and I'm going to discount Rick and Morty because it's got it has other goals than achieving like really tight world building. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good, and I like I like a lot of things about it, but it's 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 just it's going for different stuff. Um, I'm not sure how much of what I like about about the good place is the world building or kind of the implications of it. Or I'm going to say good place anyway. I'm bad at picking favorites, but you know, so it doesn't really matter. Good place. <laughs> uh, I uh, we we talked about it before on a previous episode, but I was so enamored by Name of the Wind that like it doesn't really matter what the other options are. I'd still be like, Name of the Wind has the best world building. Because <laughs> um, it's just, I, I fell in love with that book. It's an amazing book. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, you said you had a second point? A second a second item of follow-up? Yes. Uh, we got an email from um, Jack Watson. Jack Watson. Jack Watson, who is listening to the podcast way behind uh, as of a few... Weeks ago, they were on uh, episode one X, and we had uh, we said something about film music in 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 that episode. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, fair enough. I don't remember, but yeah. <laughs> uh, they recommend that we listen to uh, Steven Universe's music. Oh, interesting. Uh, the only thing I've I've listened to uh, is Giant Woman on repeat. Um, well, that's a great. It is song. a great song. Um, it is a great song. Uh, um, but yeah, I was quite familiar with that song before I even I even actually watched the show. Oh right, okay. Yeah, because uh, my sister, who was a big fan, like kept singing it. It was stuck in her head for ages. So I was I was quite familiar with it before I actually sat down to watch through Steven Universe. Um, but the the interesting thing about the the music in Steven Universe, as uh, Jack points out, is that instead of having musical themes or leitmotifs or anything for the main characters each character has an instrument associated with them oh yeah 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 uh so garnet is a synth bass Mm -hmm. 
Amethyst is uh, electronic drums. Pearl is a piano. And Stephen is a chiptune kind of sound. Is he? Oh. Yeah, apparently so. I mean, I, I didn't pick up on that one. I was I was aware of some of the others. I hadn't picked up on that one from watching oh, okay. it. Oh, okay. There you go. Um, and then when you get uh, fusions of the characters, they make... Uh, the, the that that fusion character gets both of their sounds combined or the, the music is written with both of the instruments so for example in giant woman when we meet uh opal is it opal is the the fusion of oh. amethyst and no idea don't remember the names okay yes opal is the fusion of pearl and amethyst when we see her for the first time the music that we hear is piano and electronic drums okay yeah and another thing is a lot of the characters, um, especially guest characters and fusions and stuff, are voiced by musicians. So Opal is voiced by Amy Mann, I think her name is. Um, uh, just because you know, music is such a big part of the show. Um, yeah, Amy Mann. Sugalite is voiced by Nicki Minaj. Ha! <laughs> yes, love Nicki Minaj. And uh, this will be like this will be mildly spoilery. Um, we we do eventually meet the diamonds, um, or we we encounter them in some way. And uh, Blue Diamond is voiced by oh, she's an Irish an Irish folk musician. Oh no um, way! Uh, what's her name? Lisa Hannigan. Oh, Lisa Hannigan is amazing. Her stuff with Damien Rice was stunning. Absolutely stunning. I don't actually know her music that she's well. Got, she just has this beautifully serene, uh, like, delicate fairy of the forest type voice. Um, it's, just, mm. it's just, she's she's great. I'll, I'll leave a link to some of her music in, in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Like, it really, I really love it. Um, yeah, the, man, you see, what's really interesting about this is, and I'm going to, this is going to, I'm going to come across as being a classical music snob here. And I fully am aware of this and I apologize uh, in advance. But very often people are like, oh my God, the music in this thing is brilliant. And here's X reason. And then the X reason is, is, is explained. And you're kind of like, yeah, but that's kind of like real base level composition. Like having gone through classical college, uh, classical music college and having, ta- having taken composition uh, courses um, dealing with like pretty high-end, abstract, uh, avant-garde music. Y- everything is just kind of, everything outside of that is just kind of like, oh, that's really simplistic. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not revolutionary. It's not um, massively unique. It's not boundary pushing. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, assign an instrument to a character. Like this happens all the time in, in yeah. abstract instrumental music. And the idea that when they play together in abstract instrumental music, your brain kind of set, makes it so that this carry these characters come together. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't know what the point of this is and what what my commentary is. But it just my brain is always kind of like, yeah, that's cool. I remember covering these things in composition class. Um, yeah, that that's true. But I don't think anyone. Is, first of all, I don't think anyone is claiming that it is groundbreaking. I think they're just saying that it's kind of cool. Um, and second of all, in composing far film and TV, I think leitmotifs would be the more, much more common right, way to go. Right, right, right. Um, and composing for, on a commercial basis 
is a lot different to composing more abstractly. Like when you have to make the music for a TV show and you have to have a certain amount delivered in a certain time, it's probably a bit harder to to stick to things like that. Or Well, maybe it's easier in a way, but I think it's certainly a different context than just writing for you know yourself or writing for kind of a, a more high art yeah yeah that that that's setting. fair that is fair um maybe maybe what i'm what i'm saying is kind of like i i wish that some of the more high art stuff could trickle down um and we see more of the techniques that are used in like high abstract art uh filter into the commercial maybe that's what i'm saying i don't know i don't know uh, in the same in the same way that you know the way when NASA launches a rocket up into space, you're like that's cool and all, but you're also kind of like I want that technology trickle down so I can use it. So I'm kind of like if 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 great like uh, contemporary composers have come up with all these amazing compositional tricks that are kind of largely outside of commercial and film music, I kind of want them to uh, trickle down um, mm-hmm. and see more of them. Um, uh, Hamilton, your way I love Hamilton I think it's great and all a very yeah. similar thing, I feel very similarly about Hamilton because it's like people will go on about how amazing the the compositional um, artistry is and like what Moran, Lin-Manuel, Lin-Manuel, Miranda, ah, what Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing in terms of like composition. What who? Don't, Bill. I can't. I had a, <laughs> a clean cut there, Bill, and now I'm gonna have to leave in all the word vomit. Um, but yeah, uh, people like are kind of like, oh my god, he's this genius for doing that, and it's great and all, but it's like it's real, it's real based, it's real basic, like, um, and yeah, again, it's not that it's not effective, it's not that it's not emotional or anything, it's just, it's just kind of like almost you know semester one of a composition class um yeah no I, I i see what you mean like what i mean could you give me an example of something that you would wish would trickle down oh boy uh, I, okay because like i can't conceive of what what more could be done like i, I can't conceive of, of, of what things you could do that wouldn't just take it out of the context entirely well, I mean, what do what do we have in high art, high art music that we don't have in commercial? Like, you could argue like serialism. Uh, you could argue like um, more of like Messian's uh, modes and things like that, and use them to symbolically say something about what you're saying. Um, uh, like even the way the instruments are played I mean because I think a lot of people if they heard the way avant-garde music is played they might be kind of like Jesus a, a violin can can make that sound that's either horrific or amazing depending on your outlook because um, I think extended techniques get, get a reasonable amount of exposure in in filmic music and sorry what, what gets what gets a reasonable amount of exposure extended techniques I, do they? Is that what you mean? Do I, man, do they don't? Ah, yeah. Well, because hang on, right? But hang on, like everyone has grown up watching films always, right? And people have, uh, even at the youngest age, people will sing back music from films. But then, uh, like, I'm sure you had this experience too. When you go into music class in school and you're forced to kind of study these abstract, avant garde, high end pieces, uh, people are like shocked that this is even a thing. 
people are always like, what is this horrific sound? Why would anyone create this? Like, as if this is like alien music that they've never experienced before in their life. So whilst I'm not saying that there is no extended techniques in commercial film music, I, I don't think it's so ubiquitous that people could be all like, oh yeah, that high art piece that I just listened to, that sounds a bit like the music from X film. Um... I'm certainly not saying that it's ubiquitous, but I think it's there. And yeah, marginally, I would like, say. I mean, like, like, you hear clusters loads in music. You you hear, especially with, with string music, um, you, you hear kind of modern and kind of, you know, late 20th century onwards uh, compositional approaches in, in, in film music. Like, uh, Ligeti was, was used as a lot of the music in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, yeah. Johnny Greenwood's film scores. Yeah. And I think serialism is kind of played out as a as a concept. I mean that's it's over 100 years old or it's pretty much 100 years old at this stage. Yeah, it Matt, it has just um well I just to say I I slightly disagree with that. Uh, I still think there is um you t- there is some um uh fruitful what's what fr- fruitfulness to be had there. Um uh, if you don't, yeah, but no less than there is in tonality, right? Yeah, yeah. Like there's still fruitfulness in tonality. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Like I'm not saying like, oh, like we've exhausted tonality and we have to go with serialism, uh, and that's where everything is. Not at all. Uh, I think there is. Uh, you can get use out of serialism as long as you don't stick to it too too harshly, the way they did at the start uh, of uh, of yeah. the uh, the twentieth century. It, it has just occurred to me, Bill. We've been talking for the past fifteen minutes about like high end. Uh, avant-garde uh, techniques in music that maybe not everyone uh, is aware of like um, I, do, I don't we'll, we'll move on to the next bit of the email I, I, think, I think we should move on because yeah I don't think everyone's gonna be all like oh my god yay they're talking about Messian this is the best thing ever but like those three people will really enjoy oh yeah they'll be all like it's great <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> uh, last bit of the email uh, so also um also, Jack Watson wanted to ask us about uh, the world building in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, especially around the the world building world building of Magrathea, which I had forgotten the name of. But Magrathea, um, as far as I remember, is the or as far as I can tell, is the. Have, oh wait, have you read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Man, Galaxy? It's been so long. It's been and it's been an okay. age since I've watched the film as well. I've never actually seen the the recent film. Uh, or the, the more recent one. Um, yeah, Magrathea is the planet where the firm that built Earth was based. Oh, it's uh, uh, Slarty Barkfast uh, is, is given the tour of. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, again, Hitchhiker's Day to the Galaxy, there's a lot of fun stuff in it, but I think the world building is kind of secondary to the not exactly the gags, but it's secondary to the 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 humor. The satire. Is it the satire? Yeah. 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 I mean, there, there's good stuff in it, but overall, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's it's super tight world building. And you know, he has a lot of good concepts that make fun points and make interesting and, and thoughtful points. But I wouldn't consider it to be really really tight world building the way I would something like uh, Good Place or King Killer or. Um, what I do like by uh, Douglas Adams, though, is the the Dirk Gently books. 
You have two Dirt Gently books, which are very, very good. I think you've talked about these before. Hold on. I think I have, yeah. Dirt Gently. It's amazing how when you've been doing a podcast for like four years that you repeat yourself. <laughs> uh, the Holistic Detective Agency. This sounds familiar, man. That's that. That's the first one. And the second one is The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. <laughs> um, and there's a there's a TV series of it as well, which I which came out a few years ago. I think it's had three series and it was cancelled in the last few months. Starring I, Frodo. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Elijah Wood is in it. Um, which I did not like at all when no. I I watched the the first episode of or the first few episodes of. I thought they they got a lot of things very very wrong about it, and that's not not even just like being a purist. I just I just thought it was kind of going for an entirely different kind of feel. It didn't have the same mm. the same heart at all. And I thought that Dirt Gently was really, really badly cast. It was a completely different kind of character. Um, but I've also heard people say that it's a really, really good show. And I, I've gotten the impression they may have consciously made some of those choices that led it to being different as a way of playing with the original material. So I might give it another shot. Yeah, okay, cool. I'll stick links in the show notes so people can go check it out. All right, uh, uh, traditional world building. Uh, do you want to give us uh, the ba- a little bit of background and then do you want to launch into your uh, piece of prose? There is no map, listeners. I know uh, we all wanted a map. There's no map. I-, I wanted a map. People in the Reddit wanted a map, but Bill Bill doesn't care about us. So what he's done is he's wrote another piece of prose and we That's all true. just have to be fine with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's another piece of prose. Uh, once again, we're on uh, Romance. And there are a couple of links here to, uh, not direct links, but a couple of things that you might pick up on from previous uh, installations of uh, things that have happened in romance. So, uh, yeah, I'll just fire into it. To whom it concerns, please excuse the errors of my language. I am communicating in your tongue for the first time in the medium of letters, being previously only accustomed to speech and the simplest ledger-keeping. I write to you as an acquaintance and business agent of Ostkin Theater. I must report with heavy sadness that he has died. It is unknown to me how those in your country treat the death of your kin. Please be comforted that we have extended every possible respect to his passing in the manner of our own people. As his chief associate in this land, I have charged myself with the handling of his remaining affairs and the return of his effects to his home. The contents of his office will be shipped back to Mearsphere with the next company vessel flying that route. I shall give you an account of what I know of Ostkin's final days and passing. As you are no doubt aware, Ostkin was in Ebwar, seeking to enter the local mining business on behalf of your firm. He had promised capital and many materials to a number of local enterprises, and had become well-known and well-liked among the controllers of the local commerce, hosting most agreeable parties for those of us involved in the trade, and showing us the great delights that the northern culture has to offer. We all saw what prosperity could be brought to Ebwar by association with Ostkin and the companies and the noble city of Mearsphere most particularly. 
Please be assured that none of us who traded with Ostkin would have dreamed of harming him, and we had not a hand in his death. Rumours and speculation of Spire's deprivations in Anches and other foreign lands carry no currency among the traders of Ebwar, who seek only a peaceful and mutually profitable relationship. It was at one such gathering, held three nights ago, that we last saw Ostkin. It was an affair typical of his gatherings. A dozen or so local captains of enterprise, a handful of company officers, Ostkin himself, and on this occasion two more unusual figures, an Erthan river trader, and a curious person of obscure origin, a squat man with skin the colour of Azen wood and peculiar clothing, claiming to be a nomadic trader. This final person engaged very little in the society of the party, and refused all food and drink, excepting a cup of water and syrup. Late in the evening, he secured a private audience with Ostkin, and they retreated to a side office. I hope I do not breach any social precedence if I tell you that Ostkin seemed reluctant to be alone with this person, and that shortly after they emerged, Ostkin begged forgiveness for calling an early end to the evening, and retired to his own chambers before all the guests had left. He seemed most perturbed by whatever discourse passed between him and the mysterious trader. He was not seen the next morning, nor during the day. He had never missed an appointment in Ebwar, and his absence was soon noted. An examination of his chambers, undertaken by me personally, in the presence of his secretary and the captain of the Tamar company, revealed no clue to his whereabouts, except for a packed travelling chest, as though he was preparing to leave Ebwar. His appointments book revealed that he was not due to return to the north, nor travel elsewhere on business, for more than twenty days. It was last night, on the evening of the second day of his disappearance, that his body was discovered at an abandoned mine, not far from the company's shipfield, which Ostkin was considering acquiring and reopening under the management of your firm. A local boy, tasked with exploring the workings, spied him through the window of the mine office. Though he had been missing for less than two full days, he appeared to have suffered a great illness. His skin was drawn, his face was gaunt, and he appeared much older than his years. No cause of his death could be definitively established. Though an older mine captain summoned by the boy confided in me that it greatly resembled a wasting disease that afflicted the miners of Anches, where he once worked in his youth. No such disease has ever been known among the Abwari. A further curiosity arose from this tragic situation. The office in which Ostkin was discovered was locked, but no key was found within the room. The only copy was in a workshop across the yard. Thus I must unfortunately assume that malicious agency or foul play is somehow involved in Ostkin's passing. I regret that I must communicate with you under such tragic circumstances. I regret further that the acquisition of the mine by your firm will no longer be possible, as we do not wish to open up a working that may have poisonous airs so close to our homes. The delivery of Ostkin's effects to your offices has been arranged, and should any further issues pertaining to his business here arise, I will contact you immediately. With blessings, Tare Lamin, business agent.
Cool. Very cool. It's a whodunit. It's a bit of a whodunit. Um, yeah, do you want to give do you want to give us a, a little bit of synopsis? Just because I always launch him with questions and we'll flip it around this month. Um, so, do you remember the Year's Rise revel from the last episode? This, it occurs during the revel. No, no, no. It's, 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 the, the, the revel took place in Utvev. This is in Ebwar, which is m- many, many hundreds of miles away. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But this is the same festival? No. No? Okay. So no. what's the tie-in from the last time? Do you remember who hosted the party? No. It was hosted by a licensed prospector, which is something you asked me about. Oh, yes. Said that a licensed prospector was a, a, a sort of colonial sort of business enterprise. Oh, very cool. Okay. Right. That's what that's what Ostkin is. Ostkin is a licensed prospector. He is a licensed... Or he was a licensed prospector. Well, he was. Now he did. Now he did. Um, yeah. Okay, and we don't and um, we don't know who killed him, but we suspect it's uh, the. I have it underlined here. Um, yeah, the 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 Ethan River Trader, the curious person of obscure origin. We suspect it's 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 the obscure origin person. Yes, and what is the the person of obscure origin? Yeah, this reminded me of a thing. I don't know who it was, but I remember we had we were with the Ethan River River people before. That was the dude who. Uh, got like uh, marooned there um, mm-hmm. wasn't it and he uh, went with well, them to a place somewhere oh yeah no, he he went with them to uh, Lansk I think it was where he was where, he, where that marooned party of smugglers was headed possibly that now that's not the person now is it it is not. It is not. Do we know this person? Have we? Uh, is it? Uh... It is. It is not a. It's not a specific person. But um, the they certainly have been mentioned as traitors before. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm not going to remember because this this story comes in uh, one page every month, so it's hard to keep track. But uh, <laughs> I'm assuming then the listeners could piece it together if they if they are so inclined. I reckon so. Oh, I reckon so. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Um, let me have a look at what I underlined. Um, yeah, I underlined uh, the thing. The contents of his office will be shipped back to Mearsphere with the next company vessel flying that route. And I thought to mm-hmm. myself, we had mention of uh, a vessel carrying some relics um, or, yes. or something valuable. And that made me immediately think that maybe this, this licensed prospector guy is holding on to something valuable. And... Uh, yeah, it's trans. We've already come across its transport before. Um, I know you probably can't comment on that, but that's what what my uh, what my brain came to. Uh, no, the the, the contents of uh, Ostkin's office are not what was being uh, searched for. Okay, so um, so they're literally by... they're literally just returning his stuff back to his family or whatever. Yeah, so Vistan was looking for 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 some kind of relic that had been lost to his crowd. Uh, that's not what Ostkin. The Ostkin isn't involved in that. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, then uh, I underlined the Ethan River Trader and the Curious Person because I was like, we've definitely met someone who uh, who uh, who has dealt with the Ethan River people, but we we went through that. Um, yep. What's this part here? It revealed no clue where about except for a pack. Oh right, okay, yeah, yeah. So um I've underlined the bit here where um 
the writer of the piece and a captain of the Tamara Company went in and examined uh, Oskin's um, office and mm-hmm. they found the pack traveling chest as if he was preparing to leave uh, Edward, mm-hmm. but he had not said that he was going to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, I suppose the question I wanted to ask around that is what did this obscure person say to him to make him be all like, I got to leave right now or because I'm assuming if the person came in there and was like, I'm going to kill you. Uh, Oskin's not going to be like, hang on now, let me pack whilst I try and make my escape. He would just run for it, you know? So I'm assuming the, the that obscure person threatened them with something or threatened his company with something. And that the would guy be a, was like, a logical, you what? That would be a logical conclusion. Sorry, I interrupted you there. No, yeah, yeah. I was just rambling. Uh, yeah, that is essentially that. That was my thesis. So uh, again, I realize it's not fruitful uh, in asking you these questions, but the question would be, uh, what was said um, to Oskin? What was the threat? Something about his past was what was said. Something he was, about he his was, past. He was being made to to reckon with with his past. Hmm. Okay. So this person. Okay. Okay. So maybe this person was going to out him. Maybe he was going to dox him. <laughs> um. And then. Uh, okay. Oh yeah. And then I was going to ask about the illness. You you say here. Um. His skin was. This is of Oskin, who was dead. Uh, his skin was mm-hmm. drawn. His face was gaunt, and he appeared much older than his years. Um. Is this flamboyant speech for some sort of like mummifying type thing, or have you invented this? like a disease and if so tell us about it if you can uh no it's it's literally just he he his his body looked as though he had died of a disease which had you know in in the not too distant past been known to afflict um miners the industry that Ostkin worked in in Anches which is a, another region kind of between um the spires kind of land and um erbar are are there earth diseases that make a person look gaunt and older than his years or is well, it I mean, or is this borderline magical as in he looks like he has aged a ton here or is it just you're using descriptive flowery language i mean being a miner isn't the healthiest profession especially before modern <laughs> protective equipment no no but what no, but what i mean is okay hang on all right let, let's say we take a miner uh, mm-hmm. and the miner looks really old and haggard right they get this right. disease and then a day later do they suddenly look like they're a hundred years older right like is oh it, no, no oh so that's not a fact of the world so you're using you're you are just using flowery language to describe to describe just... the sickness not to like uh not to like describe a made up oh no no like he he looked as though he he had suffered and died of this illness, but in a in a time frame in which he could not have gone through the entire illness. Right. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And there's nothing magical about the illness. It's just a nondescript illness that miners get. The illness that the miners get is not magical. Okay. No. Cool. Cool. Uh... But suffering it within two days could well be. Could well be. Okay, so I'm assuming there's obviously some sort of poisoning or something happening there. Um, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Um, and remember how, like, magic and poison are kind of conflated ideas in some in, in some 
contexts. Oh, very good. Very cool. I like it. Um, and then the last thing I've underlined here is, here is uh, the, I regret, I regret further that the acquisition of the mine by your firm will no longer be possible as we do not wish to open up a working that may have poisonous airs so close to our homes. Um, and I guess that made me think that uh, that was the assassin's end game to make sure that uh, the, the, whatever business dealings they had done uh, in terms of setting up these mines uh, don't happen. Um, so there's obviously something going on there. Uh, just, just speculation. I have no question there. It's just speculation. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, and then one last thing. This is not related to... It's kind of an anecdote. Uh, you say at the very start, I am communicating in your tongue for the first time in the medium of letters, being previously only accustomed to speech and the simplest ledger keeping. You, my friend, have described my father, and it's made me really nostalgic. The dad used to always... <laughs> yeah, dad used to always speak of... because So my father's German, for anyone who, who doesn't know. Um, so he obviously grew up speaking German. Uh, he moved to Saudi Arabia for work much like the way young people today move to like uh, Southeast Asia um, to, to like do TEFL things. Um, Saudi Arabia apparently in the like 70s, 80s was a bit of a hotspot for this. I don't really know. But uh, he moved there anyways and he began to learn English uh, there because he had to communicate with the English world via his work. Um, and he got English down really quickly, he says, in terms of speaking. Uh, and was like, this is great. I can just like, I, as a German speaker, uh, I know how easy it is to like encode what I say in letters because it's really, for the most part, it's really logical. You kind of just read the string of letters uh, and then the sound you make is the word. There's not much orthographic uh, depth going on with German, uh, German writing. And so he thought it would be the same thing in English. And then his Saudi teacher of English introduced him to the notion of writing English. And he was all like, what on earth? Like, a B? why is there a B at the end of this word? What are you doing? To like, he just, he couldn't, it must have been his first exposure to like uh, writing in another language or whatever. But he just, I remember him telling me how, how his mind was just so blown by the idiocy of English writing and he just couldn't write English for the longest time but could speak it perfectly uh, now in hindsight having having he was probably just being a bit hyperbolic and stuff because I was kind of like surely he must have grown up in a world where uh, he knew that French existed and that French has bonkers writing but apparently English he he just English was like it was just a total no goal for him um, so it reminded me of that, like as in I can speak your thing, uh, thing perfectly, but I went to write it and it's bonkers, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the what I was just going there for there was how you, often you come across people who say, you know, I'm sorry for my bad English, and then communicate in beautiful English. Oh yeah, <laughs> like it's, it's really common. <laughs> like we we get that sometimes in like emails and like comments on the Reddit and stuff. People say, like, "Oh, like, sorry for my bad English. It's not my first language," and they are completely coherent. Yep, I can. Always... <laughs> so I put this at the start here. It's like, oh no, I'm communicating in your tongue for the first time. <laughs> um, please excuse the errors, and then you know, actually quite, quite verbose language. So just just a little gag on my part. Yeah, and it's it's very very eloquent. Um, I I guarantee that people in the Reddit who are not uh what's called um English is not their first language. I guarantee you they speak English better than I do. Hundred <laughs> percent. 
100 <laughs> percent uh but i like it it's cool i i really i really enjoy man that you are sticking with romance i i really enjoy that we're not oh, hop, hopping around the place um it's uh although it is quite hard to follow being that it's one post per month um but it mm-hmm. is kind of cool trying to like piece together the web of what's going on um mm-hmm. so I, I i as always i would encourage a map but i added to that i would encourage um you to just keep keep it romance Oh, and also, uh, last episode, loads of people, like, we get comments and emails being all like, I love the last episode, in very general terms, but loads of people mm-hmm. were kind of like, I, sp- I specifically really loved the uh, episode, and Bill's world building was really great in it. Um, oh, cool. Because I think, I think it, w- it was very, kind of, it was very uh, of the moment, because it was a Christmas piece for Christmas, you know, or a New Year's <laughs> piece, rather. Uh, so I also I would encourage you if you have time and you can work it in to do more of that like uh, to do a I don't know well we won't get to do it now but like a Valentine's piece like a love story for Valentine's Day or a I don't know a, a nationalism story for St. Patrick's Day or something like that because um, <laughs> I think it, it ties it in really well and it gives a sort of it gives a sense of festivity to this segment of the show uh, so yeah yeah th- those, mm-hmm. those are the things I'm putting I'm putting on my wish adding to the wish list Sure thing. Cool. Um, any 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 Easter eggs in this um, that I've missed? Uh, any Easter eggs? Let me just have a, have a quick reread over it. I don't think so. Um, so I mean, obviously, you you know what the companies are the the Tamar company. That's where yeah. Yartlen and the character from last episode's mm-hmm. letter are employed. Uh, so the, the, there are um, there are multiple companies. One of which is the Tamar Company. Yes. Um, it's pretty much all. Cool. Pretty much all what we've covered. Cool. Excellent. Um, yeah, man, fully enjoyed. Uh, uh, looking forward to uh, a follow up of it. Cool. Cool beans. All right. Will we? Oh, geez, I about to say will we stop and save, but no, we should like continue doing the main topic where I talk about my things. <laughs> Yes, let's do that. <laughs> uh, okay, I have, I have a couple of things uh, to bring up because it has been ages since we recorded because of the whole Christmas break. Um, mm-hmm. So I would like to talk briefly about uh, my latest video, um, Verbal Mood Part 1. It'll be in the description. And I also want to talk about one point of follow-up around the q and I did for Christmas because I think it's an interesting conversation. Uh, cool. So on the point of Verbal Mood, um, really quickly, I just want to bring up two mistakes uh, I got some languages like geographically wrong. Like I was like, oh, here's an example from X language. And I have a little like beacon on my world map in the video that says where the language is. And a couple of them, I just forgot to move the bloody beacon uh, when making the graphics. Um, so that's a thing that <laughs> was pointed out by a number of people that I want to flag. I'm also, I'm going to link to, as inspired by one of uh, the listeners, I am going to link to a the errata document that I have now created. Um, so all the corrections for Artifexian are now going to go in this Google Doc. And after every video, I would encourage everyone to check out the Google Doc and see if there's anything in there that needs um, amending. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's all I have to say about Forever Move. It was really well received. People were kind of like, yeah, no, I dig it. There's not much wrong in there. So I was like, cool. Um, so have you watched it, Bill? And if so, I have, have you it. any questions? Very few. Um, I thought it was a really, really concise, you know, despite its, its length, it was really clear and gave the information really, really well. Um, cool. 
I have I have one small question. Okay. Um, now this was the example that you used for uh, volative modality to indicate willingness. Yes. And the the example sentence you used was Inara will let you say will let you stay. Mm-hmm. So that you're you're expressing your belief of Inara's willingness there. Yes. Um. Now this uses the same. Is it a modal verb or whatever? Yeah, modal um, auxiliary. Um, in will, which you which you say earlier in the video, has multiple uses. Yes. Um, and you could also scan that sentence as being um assumptive modality that she will let you stay, and that's based on your knowledge, based on your inference of knowledge about Anara and based on previous experience. Sure. So. So is it just that English doesn't distinguish between willingness and that kind of assumptive thing, and other languages do? Or man, what's going on there? Man, you're such a faker. The this is this point I'm going to bring up in what is what might become a part three to this little series. Uh, but yes, the. Um, there's a pro tip I wanted to talk about with conlangers in that um, I, I think there's two strategies to employing mood in, in a conlang. One is to um, grammaticalize it and one is to do what English does and uh, use modal auxiliaries, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the pro tip I was going to give conlangers is that I would encourage them not to do specifically what English does because the range of meanings English associates to each of its verbs each of its modal verbs are very English centric. Like it's not, they're not like standard across all modal systems. So English is quite unique in say, assigning whatever the four or five different values are to will. So you're dead right. English just doesn't distinguish it. English just has a whole bunch of things that will can do, uh, you know, future, uh, assumptive, uh, um, what was it? The, the actual example in the video uh volative it it just doesn't distinguish and it's like kind of context that we can we can parse this um but if one is creating their own portal line and they want to use modal auxiliaries i would encourage people to like pull apart these meanings uh and maybe recombine them in a different way or create one modal verb for each of these different meanings just don't do what english does because it's very it's it's very english uh, and no other language really okay um, that was that's literally going to be in the script. I can't believe we brought it up. That's hilarious. <laughs> Sneak preview there. Sneak preview. I thought I actually I, uh, I was expecting an awful lot of people to call me out on those uh, to be all like, oh, that sentence you said is also this. But I was really kind of impressed that people kind of were like, I'm assuming people clocked that, but they were also kind of like, oh no, I get it. Like he's just dealing with that one aspect. Because usually internet is really quick to tell me all the ways in which I am wrong about everything uh, without maybe taking in the broader yeah. context of the argument around it. But yeah, very, very few of that. Like people were just kind of like, they just accepted it and they're kind of like, yeah, I, I've read that sentence. I have listened to the thing you said it does. I agree that that sentence does that thing. We can all move on now. And I was like, thank God. <laughs> uh, thank you, internet. Thank you, internet. For once um and the anything else uh no that was it cool very cool um this is going to be for the listeners this is definitely going to be part of a two-part series um 
And actually, I'll, probably, I'll spoil it here slightly because it, it'll be out soon after this podcast anyways. Um, the second part is dealing with um, realis and irrealis and the indicative and subjunctive moods. So the idea being that the first the first video, this video that was just released, is kind of a tour of the various different semantic things modality can do. And the second video is going to be more like how languages bake those meanings into their grammar. Um, and then the potential third video, which may or may not, not happen, is sort of a, like tips for dealing with modes in your conlangs. Um, I am unsure mm-hmm. as to whether or not I need to make that or whether or not I can I can just assume that people will take all the information I've displayed and then choose what they want to do in their conlang. So I, I don't know if, if I'm being too literal there. I'll have to see. Um, but yeah, that's that's the jazz with that. Um, yeah. Can I move on to the Q&A? Please do. So one point I want to bring up here was there was a slight bit of controversy. Uh, the internet got a little bit angry at me because I said in the Q&A for Christmas time um, that I think proto-langs aren't all as uh, maybe shouldn't be celebrated as much as they're celebrated in in terms of conlang um a lot of conlangers uh say that the method for creating languages is you come up with a proto-lang you uh, apply uh, like sound changes to it and things like that and you evolve your language from your proto-language uh, the idea being that this would lead to more naturalistic results so any sort of kind of like randomness kind of will appear as part of the evolution and ergo you get a more naturalistic conlang and i'm having listened to the arguments of conlangers on the internet who fought back at me i can kind of see that i get I, I in fact i totally get that but i still think that uh i'm right here in that i don't think it should be applied all the time i think it's perfectly valid to create just a language without a proto-lang but people did not agree with me in that. And people were very, very, very vocal about it. And were like, you're utterly wrong about that. Um, so what I wanted to highlight is I want to talk about the semantics of naturalism, right? Because a lot of people, like the main bit of feedback was that you cannot achieve naturalistic conlangs without first creating a protolang. And like I said, that is, that is, like, that is empirically correct. They are not wrong. In that, uh, in that assertion at all. But I was coming at it more from a point of like, how does one achieve naturalism from the perspective of a person consuming your work? Um, for the most part, we conlang for novels or, or games and things like that. Like uh, we do it for a work that we're creating as part of a world. And in that case, one is not going to show a person the evolution of a language. One is not even going to show the entire language. One is not going to show them the grammar. One is going to show them the bits of the conlang that add to narrative. And I think it's important that those bits of the conlang seem naturalistic. Because um, our brains are like pattern-recognizing machines, and, we, we're, and we're so adept at being, at, at being good at language that I think it's important that whatever bit of gibberish you have in your novel looks like a language. Like it, it, there feels like there's affixes there. It feels like there's some sort of word order going on. It feels like it has structure. And I think, and which all of which will make the reader and the consumer of your work, uh, feel like this is a natural language quotes around the word natural. 
And I feel like one does not need to make a protolang to an order in order to achieve this version of naturalism. Um, so, yeah, my re- my sort of considered response to the feedback is that if by naturalism you mean you can hand up all your documents to another linguist and conlanger and say, look, you can track the evolution of my language, I have a wonderfully natural conlang, then yeah, protolang all the time. But if by naturalism you want to like sell your language, uh, like suspend disbelief in on part of your consumer, I don't think proto-languages are necessary. You can do them, but I don't think they're as necessary as people make out. Um, what do you think about that, Bill? Am I crazy here? Will a proto-language... Like, are there features that identify it as a proto-language? I kind of, like, could you just say, like, take French as a proto-language and then apply sound changes to that? I mean, it's just the way that the argument is being framed makes it sound to me as though they're positing some inherent difference between proto-languages and other things. No, they're not. No, there is no inherent difference. The difference, the, the utility of it is the evolution from it. Right? Because, like, in evolving it, uh, you will create randomness, like I said, and that creates naturalism. Um, and in general, proto-languages tend not to be as fleshed out as your actual conlang. They tend to be kind of sketches, uh, and you kind of just evolve it from there. It's a bit circular, if I was really critical. I'd be kind of like, you made a thing to make a thing, and you're in charge of making both those things. Ergo, like... There's no real naturalism there because, like, everything's being constructed by you. But that's me being a bit harsh. Um, does that answer your question? Kind of. Kind of. Elaborate. I think I, maybe I just don't understand the bounds of the argument well enough. Okay. I'll link, I might link you some, um, some of the comments. Uh, in fact, I'll just link you whole threads after the show and see what you think. Um, right. Because I, 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 I want to make it clear, I do think there is a utility in protolangs. I really do. Uh, because, yeah, you can suddenly end up with, like, I don't know, like, say, let's, for exa- let's say, for example, uh, in German, um, the, this isn't going to be a perfect example because I haven't considered it, but let's just go with me here, internet. In German, you have, like, definite articles that look identical to one another, mm-hmm. but perform very different functions. So let's take, um, der Hund, right, which is the, the dog, and that that word there is masculine, nominative masculine, uh, definite article. Um, but you can also say a thing like in der Küche, which is in the kitchen, but the the there, uh, in in that context is a dative feminine, which is entirely different, right? It's performing an entirely different gotcha. role. You what? I gotcha, yeah, I, I, I follow. Cool. Uh, and it's performing an entire different role, but they look the same. And whilst I don't know if this is how they actually evolve like this, uh, in a conlang sort of sense, you can get those sort of disparate elements looking the same because of the evolution from where they came. Do you know, like in their line, so they might be different elements. In the hypothetical proto-German, they would have been different and they evolved to be the same thing. Right, exactly. They might have been different. Like, let's say, for example, again, these are really rough examples because I'm doing it on the fly, but let's say in hypothetical proto-German, they were, the masculine uh, masculine nominative was dera and uh, data feminine was dero. And then something happened in the language where all final vowels were dropped 
and shock horror, you have Dea gotcha. on there. So there is utility in it, for sure. I just don't know whether or not that utility is needed to sell a, a conlang to readers or watchers of your work. Um, yeah. But the no, but like no conlang agrees with me. Like a very, very strong opinion is people are like, no, no, Edgar, you're entirely wrong. You don't understand the power here. And I'm like, I, I do. I just think I have a different take on it. Um, and also, I really do think it's quite daunting if you're a, if you're a, a new conlanger. And someone goes, oh, yeah, you, see, you know the way Tolkien made up a lot of languages? You can do that, too. And then the person's like, oh, that's amazing. And then you're like, okay, we're going to make a, an ancient version of your language first. And then we're going to apply all of these these things to it, all of which have a whole bunch of technical terms with them on them. Because it's not, you can't just do whatever. You should try and do something that actual human languages do. Uh, you do all that. And then from there, then you can start, then you get your language. Like, if that was told to me when I first learned what conlang was, I'd be like, that seems way too technical, way too hard. I just can't do mm-hmm. that. I'm just going to make up gibberish instead, which I think is um, is not the correct way of f- like uh, framing how how to get people into this. To be like, you know, you're new to conlang, let's make up a language. And then if you get super advanced into it, then you can look at the other stuff, um, is my opinion. But yeah. I, I got you. I got you. Uh, again, the, based on what I've said, and I realize I'm not giving you the full thing here because there's no one on the other side. D- d- is what I'm saying? Does what? Um, is what I'm saying like logical at all? Or are you kind of like? Uh, no, no. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm on board. Like you don't need it in order to make something that is effective for the audience. Okay. It's not necessary to make to make to 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 go through that process as far as the audience reception is concerned. That's it, is, it, is one, it is one method of doing that, but it's not necessarily the, the only way to do it. And I think that was my biggest issue because it is often framed like it is necessarily, it is necessary that you do this. Like there's no discussion. Like, and again, in a lot of the feedback I got from it, there was lots of like one must make a proto-line with must like underlined uh, italics and bold. And it's it's that sort of like, monolithic like there is but this one way that i'm kind of Mm -hmm. rallying against a little bit because like with any art form there's never just one way there's always multiple ways and you should choose a way that you are interested in is the most effective is the most applicable etc um i think um now uh, listeners uh there will definitely be some conlangers still uh who will be all like no no edgar you're still horrifically wrong i very 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 much want you to uh, tear me apart in the Reddit here because I would very much like to do follow up next time where Bill has a chance to hear your arguments and to maybe have a bit of a back and forth with Bill over this and see can we have a fully informed discussion about this because I I think this uh, this notion is quite fascinating uh, and I'd like to do that so please do tear me apart in the Reddit folks I'm giving you permission you can go hard <laughs> um, and yeah that's that's that in my end uh, if you have nothing else to add Bill. I think we should launch to the green room. Bill, I would like to uh, launch into the third installment of the Bank of Artifexia, TM. Bank of Artifexia, let's do it. Uh, okay, so we got uh, three... Uh, I say we, I. I got three new letters this month, plus I got some uh, Russian money from a source that is to remain, uh, wants to remain anonymous. 
Um, Interesting. It's not Putin. <laughs> so the uh, first letter I want to get to is a letter from Miriam, which I will uh, pull out here in front of me. Hold on. Um, and Miriam comes all the way from uh, lovely Ottawa in Canada, which I hear I hear North America is under a savage like snowstorm at the moment. Mm. Um, so uh, I hope I hope you're keeping well, Miriam. Uh, Miriam sent us. Oh, uh, FYI, uh, the Dropbox file should have pictures for you, so you should open that. Sure. Um, Miriam sent us some uh, money in quotes. Uh, she sent us Canadian Tire vouchers, uh, and she writes that Canadian Tire is like a general store on steroids. They have bicycles and fishing gear, lower end tools and hockey equipment rubber boots, patio furniture, and more camouflage pattern merchandise than should really be legal. These <laughs> bills, in quotes, are redeemable coupons you get when you spend above a certain amount and they come in 5, 10, 25, 50, and 1 uh, Canadian dollar uh, vouchers. Uh, and they go on to say that uh, basically every Canadian, they're so ubiquitous that every Canadian has uh, at least some lying somewhere in their house. So now I am one of those uh, Canadians. Uh, I'm one of those faux Canadians, which is pretty cool. Uh, she, uh, <laughs> they apologize for not sending real money. I have, I am just as thrilled to receive this sort of joke thing. So if anyone wants to send fake or fictional uh, coinage my way, or even paper notes, please do. I think it's just class. And wait, wait, wait. Can it be redeemed in Canadian Tire Shops? It can be, I, I can now spend 35 cents in a Canadian tire shop if I'm ever in Canada. Brilliant. <laughs> Life is going well for me. Uh, and Miriam finishes up by saying, uh, thank you both for all the work you put into this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to look forward to every month, to which I add, it should be your favorite period. <laughs> <laughs> And I also, I believe, uh, I believe Miriam may also be a patron, uh, or at least we have a patron who who is also called Miriam. Um, so if that happens to be you, Mir- Miriam, thanks a million for supporting the show. Uh, uh, you you help us do what we do. And that's, Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. So that was Miriam and her Canadian Tire, two Canadian Tire uh, vouchers. The next one I want to get to is Andrea from... Uh, the states uh, in particular from Wisconsin and Andrea sends and again it's in front of you in a drop box there Andrea sends a very cool uh, a, a note a two dollar note which I hear is not that common okay uh, so I now have a one dollar and a two dollar and there's a cool story related to this uh, this was given to a friend of theirs I think hold on give me a second um yeah, it was given to a friend of theirs by someone uh, at a camp, at a sort of summer camp thing, who who gave this person a whole bunch of these two dollars, uh, two dollar bills, and said, "quote Spread the joy," and the notion that I this joy has now been spread across the Atlantic to to little old <laughs> Ireland, and it's now sitting in my in my note collection fills me with such joy. Like I look at it, I'm kind of like that came from like Wisconsin via this other person who probably had them all over the world somewhere else. And it's just like, Oh, so good. Love it. So, so much. Um, and, uh, Andrea goes on to say that apparently the back of the $2 note, which I'm going to get this wrong. Americans, I think is the signing of like the 
the Declaration of Independence or or um, the signing of a constitution or whatever. It's a whole bunch of white dudes in a room signing a bit of paper. Apparently, if you check the back of the $2 note with the actual paintings uh, that they have, there's huge discrepancies and just things are just completely wrong, uh, which I think <laughs> is particularly funny coming from like a hyper-patriotic nation who really cares about this sort of thing. Uh, that it's just very messed up on the back. So I will leave some uh, images in the show notes for people. But thank you, Andrea. And then finally, now this one, I'm going to uh, heads up here. This one is uh, sad uh, and touching and just wonderful. And I, I had a little, I, I may have had a little moment when this arrived in the door. Uh, this comes from, actually, do you know what? I'm going to leave this anonymous just, just to be 100% kosher. This comes from a person uh, from Massachusetts uh, in the US. You know who you are, person. And um, they say that they've been a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, oh, they I, they sent Peruvian money. Oh, uh, cool. Which, which is amazing, which is so cool. I like, I'm never really going to get to Peru. It's really hard to get to from here. It's really expensive. So that's truly amazing. And it's also uh, a worn, a real worn note. So there's some history. Is that the, there. Is that the first installment of South American money? Uh, no, I've ha- I have Brazil. I have Brazil. We have money. Brazil. Um, and but that's it. That's it from South American money. Um, but given how how small South America is in terms of like number of countries, that's like eighty percent of the countries in South America done. It's great. Um, so but yeah, so they go on to say that, and, and so I thank thank you so much for the note. But really, it's the rest of this letter that is the meaningful part. Um, they go on to say that this podcast has helped them through some pretty dark times. And they've had some, uh, what they say is like some like, like real bad health issues and they're like bedridden things. And one of the things that gave them joy was listening to us like shit on about world building and con lagging and licorice and, and like Napoleon. And that brought them uh, joy. And I think that's real beautiful. Like, and it's amazing that we are in a position that we can, you know, reach people from all over the world and create some sort of positivity in their lives. And that's, that's truly stunning. And so uh, I hope you're keeping well, um, dear dear letter writer. And uh, thank you. Don't don't thank us. Thank you. Um, so yeah, that was great. And then they say also that they are a huge fan of Scottish Gaelic. And Scottish Gaelic, despite not being Scots, as far as I can tell, Scottish Gaelic has been their passion. And uh, they, he, this person is fluent in Aran Gaelic, f- sorry, fairly fluent in Aric and Aran Gaelic, which makes them one of two speakers, uh, one of about two speakers of the dialect because the dialect is sadly extinct, which is stunning. Like they are holding history like in their brain. They are literally one of the very few people who are holding history, which is amazing. Um. And they go on to talk more about Gaelic. And then if you open up the uh, the, the Dropbox thing, they, they finish off the letter with a, a section of uh, Aaron Gaelic for us to, to view. And I want to get your opinion, man. What do you think? Uh, what do I think about what? What do you think about the Aaron Gaelic? It's weird. It looks it looks like Irish. I can see Irish words in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it looks very, very similar to Irish, but I can't quite understand it. I, I, I'm getting... Because I see stuff like Nadini, which means the people in Irish. Yeah. Um, I can see that. Uh, there's, there's something about boats. There's something about boats. Something about boats and a lake. Yeah. W- what's the word for boat? 
bod in Irish are, and here the the second word in in the in the the uh, Iron Gaelic extract botachan is is what you think boats is. Yeah. You see, now I think that could be okay. So again, for for we'll put uh, some text in the show notes, but for the listeners, it, it's something like va vyatnuk bioga ans ledicha. Now I think that could mean two small boats in the night. Could be. Yeah, and then the next sentence, the next sentence obviously reference lakes because we have Anloch, which is a lake. Um, Eggshud sounds like it's like a proceeding or traveling forward in time. That's Anshud. It's an N, not a G. Oh, sorry, not a G. Yeah, uh, Agus. The word and is there. That's always good, yeah. nice and familiar. Um, so yeah, it's it's amazing. It looks it looks so like Irish. But it just looks so not like Irish. It's it's really cool to see like something about every day in the next sense. The Irvin the Dina Fadshi Irin Gachlaha. Yeah, Gachlaha sounds like Gachlaha. See, my Irish isn't isn't that good that I would necessarily be able to understand this directly yeah. if it was exactly in Irish. Um, it's my Irish goes up and down, and it's not great at the moment. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's this is one of my soft resolutions for the year. Like I talked about earlier, uh, that you shouldn't be worried if you don't hit them. But one of the things I'm going to try to aim to do is to sign up for some sort of Irish class or some sort of like meet up with Irish speakers just to get some modicum of Irish back in my brain because I think for sure I think it is like not to get all patriotic here, but I think it actually is a little bit shocking that we collectively don't take more interest in it because like if not if not us then who you know no one else is yeah. going to keep the irish language alive and it's a beautiful thing and it should be kept alive so that's a thing that i would very much like to do if i, if I can find the necessary resources but anyway um they uh one last thing is they they ask us in in the letter here my question for you and bill is did you ever learn about dialects of irish in irish class in school did your teachers ever mention mutual intelligibility between Irish, Scottish, Gaelic, and Manx? I'm presuming not, because Irish is taught very poorly in schools. Uh, but what are your thoughts? So, do you do you remember? I have I have a sort of anecdotes around this, but do you want to do you want to fill us in on what you remember? We learn about dialects of Irish for sure, because we we have to be a bit familiar with uh, Ulster Irish, to because it might turn up in like. Um, uh, listening comprehensions and things and Ulster Irish is more different from the the standard educational form than um the the other dialects um the I think I think the the standard form which is known as the Kaidon is mostly based on Munster Irish oh um, so, so I think so so there's, there's basically there's Munster Irish which is like Kerry. Um, there's uh, Connacht Irish and there's Ulster Irish, broadly speaking. Um, and Ulster Irish is kind of like Donegal primarily. Until the late 19th, 18th century, or no, late 1800s rather, um, there, was, there were other dialects still extant. There was a, a dialect specifically in South Armagh, um, oh, which 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 died out quite recently, and there was a few other regional ones around, uh, but it's pretty much those three are the ones that are left, and then there's kind of the the Kaidon, which is sort of turning into a a form of 
among urban speakers of like Dublin Irish kind of. Oh I, wow! Well, I've seen some people say that. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that at all. Uh, for the listeners, so. for just a little bit of geography here, uh, Munster is consider Munster to be like the southern portion of the island of Ireland. Connacht to be the western. Uh, Len- yeah. Although not mentioned, Leinster will be the eastern portion and Ulster will be the northern portion. Uh, Bill mentioned Donegal there. Uh, think of Donegal as being like the nor- the very northwest uh, yeah. of the island. And then South Armagh, think of it as being uh, like in Ulster, so in the top part, but in kind of the center of the top part will be the kind of... Yeah, well, kind of southeasty. Yeah, but like, I mean, let's not get too particular here. It's, we're sort of, we're in, we're in the top... Yeah, near center, southeasty sort of thing. Um, yeah, but that's that's the rough uh, geography of what's going on in school, man. I remember. Uh, so, like you said, there was listening comprehensions, and the speakers uh, would speak in one of whatever three, four dialects there was. Um, and with Ulster Irish, like the extent of our education was that this will occur. Brace yourself. Uh, <laughs> and it was more like just hope that Ulster Irish doesn't come up because look I'm not going to teach you it they they talk funny up there let's just hope it doesn't come up or try and pick apart the thing and try and establish a couple of words and build your answer from there there was no nuanced discussion of like why and how and how the dialects differ and all that sort of thing there was nothing like that and certainly nothing about mutual intelligibility uh outside the island of ireland like there was i yeah. i i didn't even i was really old when uh the notion of scots gaelic uh was a thing that i encountered mm. I was like oh you mean to tell me that people speak in quotes irish outside of ireland i was like that's my, my mind blowing like i was from, yeah. from from secondary school education i just thought ireland was confined to the island of ireland uh, and that's terrible and again like the like the listener writes uh, the education at least when bill and i were in school was just it's, it was just crap like it was just a lot of rope memorization learn how to pass your test and then please forget this as quick as possible which is which is awful i mean apparently as late as the mid 1800s you could go from uh yeah from the, the south west of ireland the the um munster area you know uh, dingle and things like that you could you could walk all the way across the island and then get a boat to the Hebrides in Scotland, and there wouldn't there wouldn't be anywhere where people in the one town couldn't understand people in the next town. You might not be fully comprehended, you know, as a as a Kerry person in the Hebrides, mm-hmm. but at every stage there would just be a slight change. It was what's called um, a dialect continuum, and it spanned like the whole way, like kind of northeast across the island and into Scotland, and possibly even to the Scottish mainland. Um, I'm not sure how how widely spoken Scots Gaelic was on the mainland, um, at the time, uh, yeah. But yeah, like there there was there was a, a dialect continuum there as as late as that. Yeah, which is which is crazy. Like, and again, it's a really fat. I think, well, I you know patriotism here, but I think Ireland is quite a fascinating little linguistic area, um, and Ireland including bits of Scotland and and Isle of Man and things like that. And and it's a shame that we don't learn about these things at all. You know. Um, I uh, remember I said ages ago I don't know if it puts on air but I definitely talked to you about it that I was tracing my family lineage mm-hmm. and so I uh, stab- I traced it back to like mid 
as it was mid to early late 1800s on the Irish side. The German side was a little bit harder because a thing happened in the middle of the 20th century, which we don't talk <laughs> about. And that makes records a little bit difficult. Um, but on the Ireland side, I got it back to the mid to early uh, 1800s. And I found that we, like the Grunewalds, the Edgars, we came from Scotland originally. So part of my sort of headcanon with regards to my lineage is that we were like Scots Gaelic speakers and um, we came down through Ulster because this is the route that my family says was taken. They came down through Ulster, through Donegal um, and then landed in the place that we landed. And I like to think that, yeah, we were Scots Gaelic speakers and we and we um, we ended up being just before English became a thing. We ended up speaking like uh, like Irish and all that. And that sort of linguistic yeah. evolution I find really, really interesting. So what what time did you did, did you leave Scotland on the, on that side? So um, when I tracked it back to like the mid to early eighteen hundreds, we were still in Ireland, uh, and right. I, I asked around. And now this is anecdotal, so I, again I I don't know for sure, but I asked around, and all family members were like, yeah, prior to that, so say late seventeen hundreds, um, we were in, we were in Scotland. We we started coming down in the 1700s and we were in ireland okay. in the 1800s so you're too late to be galloglass but you may be planters I, I may be what now you may you may have been planters may have been planters i don't want to be planters <laughs> oh dear <laughs> oh dear uh, i don't know actually i wonder i i mean i obviously i don't know but from from what i've established uh from what I could establish, we've been like working class people just solidly always. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't. Oh my god, your your um your quality just got amazing there. Weird. Oh my god, you're perfectly clear now. You were like a robot this entire section. But anyway, um, yeah, we were. Uh, we, all we were was farmers. That's it. There was no. There was no other jobs listed in any of the censuses. It was just always farmers. So I would find it a little bit a little bit hard to think that we came from quasi aristocracy and then became like salt of the earth farmers. I, I, oh they, yeah, but you didn't like planters would, could just be regular folk. Oh, I thought planters were kind of like, didn't uh, again, my, my history is not great here. So please uh, elucidate here, but it wasn't just like that. England was, was like, we need to colonize, just, just go there and take some land and make a living. And, um, but truly that wasn't offered to just like, regular peasants like that was you must have been like rich or wealthy or something i don't think so i don't think necessarily oh all right oh then maybe we were planters so that's terrible (laughs) although the the colonists i mean i'm just having a quick look at the ulster plantation thing it's been it's been a little while since i've studied it they were required to be english-speaking protestant and loyal to the king but that's i mean that's in the the 1600s so yeah, I, I don't mm. know. I'd be interested. I would love to try and get back. And they, prob- and they probably would have been lowland Scots more so then. I don't know. Either way, even if we turn out to be planters, like <laughs> like the bad guys, so to speak, it doesn't bother me really because, I mean, you're not responsible for your past. It's not you. Yeah, it's not me. And it's good to know to know these things and to understand your origins, I think. But yeah, you're yeah. not... You're, yeah, like, cause I mean, I that's a thing that I really had to like come to terms with before I started in Family Tree because I'm half German, and again, there was that thing that happened in the middle of the twentieth century, and you're kind of like, do you re like, 
do you really want to know what happened? And then you have to be like, that's not me. Like, I'm not that person yeah. whatsoever. Um, but it is important to face that, I think. Um, but yeah, anyway, so that was a long-winded answer to uh, what Scott's... Oh, no, sorry, what what Gael, what Irish was like in school. It was abysmal. It was awful. <laughs> um, and I remember, I may have said this on the previous podcast, but I remember one particular Irish teacher who was so angry at us for not caring about Irish and I would argue we didn't care about Irish because the teaching was terrible uh, and there was no enthusiasm around the subject but this person was so angry at us that they stood up in front of the class one day and basically told us all that if we're not interested in Irish we are not Irish and if we feel that way we should just leave the country and I remember as a 15 year old being all like hang on pal don't talk to me like that, like that, because I that sort of like aggressive, like nationalistic um, thing just made me uh, as a teenager like hate the language because I was like, well, if the language breeds these sort of people, why would I want to speak this silly ass language? Um, whereas, like, obviously, later Gaelic speakers I've met, they're all lovely folk, you know, and they're just enthusiastic about sharing the language with you, which is the way it should be. But that one teacher, man, I just, I couldn't believe that that was uttered in a classroom. It was awful. Yeah. Yeah. That's really bad. And I think probably not a very uncommon experience. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, like I said, it's, it is ridiculous. Um, But anyway, so that was Bank of Artifexia. Thank you so much. I, it, it's been, how many months has this been? I think we've done three installments. So it's been three months at least of this. And I swear mm-hmm. to God, I'm still so ecstatic when stuff comes through the door. It's great. So please, please, please keep sending stuff. Uh, real money, uh, but keep it low denomination. Uh, fake money, uh, fictional money, just a letter, whatever. Just send, us stuff, send me stuff in the mail and we'll top on the podcast. It brings me great joy. So from South America, you have Peruvian and Brazilian now. Peruvian and Brazilian, yes. Well, in a month or five weeks, you might have some Argentinian as well. Bill, look at that first segue. Listeners, we all... What a a good segue I did. We all need to take a second here just to appreciate how good that segue is. Because this is an important public service announcement. And Bill just slipped into it. Like 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 the correct size foot into a shoe. It's great. <laughs> like a knife uh, into butter. Like, exactly. So you, yeah, you are going to South uh, America. So I'm going, I'm going to South America for four weeks. Um, I will be uh, visiting parts of Argentina and parts of Brazil. So we won't be able to record for at least four weeks. Um, just Which to let mean- you know that in advance, that there won't be any episodes coming in that time. Which means, by definition, this next the next episode after this is going to be late because we usually do one once every four weeks. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. just uh, you're all gonna have to be cool with that because Bill's going exploring the world and, like, you know, he has to bring me this money. So it's it's in fact it's actually like an artifact scene project. It's like, Bill, please go away and come back with money for me. So it's fodder um, for the next podcast. <laughs> class, I I will I will put everything down as a business expense, and my my accountant will be delighted with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, great. The uh, but what it's called. Uh, I hope you enjoy it, man. It's I'm I'm a little bit envious of you. It's uh, it's it's a that's a pretty cool thing to do. And South America is not a is not a place where um 
that is very easy to get to for most Europeans. It's it's a big expense, and I think it's class that you've carved out the time and money to make it happen. It's yeah, it's gonna be well I'm worth. Looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Uh, like like I do with my trips. Will you uh, keep an eye on uh, cultural things and uh, keep an eye on potential world building? Um, oh, stuff. Always. And then fill us in when you come back. That would be great. Absolutely. Cool. Oh, and also, and another thing as well. Um, uh, the don't feel. Uh, I assume, and I'm speaking for the listeners here as well. Don't feel pressure to write a thing for next month if you don't have to, because you get off the plane uh, just a couple of days before we're going to schedule the next recording. So you can just totally take the the world building part to just be like adventures in Bill Land. Like, don't 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 worry about. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. All right. Uh, I just got a text from my much better half and she's like, I am five minutes away. So uh, this, it seems like a perfect time to wrap up the show. Yeah, let's call it there. Cool. All right. It's awesome talking to you. Thank you so much to all the listeners for uh, listening, for engaging, for sending stuff in the mail, for being awesome. Y'all are great. We will see you uh, in about five to six weeks time. See you then. And until then, Edgar Edgar out. out.